Hi everyone, a very brief preface to this episode. This is a discussion with Adam Wager of King's College and UK in a Changing Europe, as is part of the course at the moment. Parts of the audio in this episode drop out on occasion and can get a bit scratchy as a result of what I presume is loads of school kids being on um, Teams and Zoom, etc. Um, and so eating up the bandwidth. I hope you enjoy the episode and find it insightful. Hi everyone, my name is Dr Pete Finn and I am a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics at Kingston University and the project lead on the COVID-19 anti-democracy project. On the podcast this week we are speaking to Alan Wager from King's College and UK in a Changing Europe. Um, the situation in the UK is pretty similar to last week cases are, although thankfully it does seem like daily reported cases of COVID-19 are starting to drop slightly, so perhaps some of the various lockdowns that are in place across the four nations are starting to have an effect, which obviously can only be a positive thing. Um, unfortunately, deaths are continue to be high, averaging, and um, well, I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon to have um, quite a bit over a thousand at the moment. Um, to discuss with us today his work for UK in a Changing Europe and some of the publications that have come out of that and the discussions around um, UK political attitudes. We, as I said, we've got Alan Wager. And um, was there anything that you wanted to add to kind of my summation? Any kind of anything particularly important you think I missed or? Well, um... <laughs> I suppose that was a pretty good summary. Yeah, we're in a bit of a we're in a bit of a mess at the moment, but uh, you know we could get out of it soon. I mean, I guess the vaccination uh, program is uh, potentially. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm like everyone. I'm I'm watching that tick up every day, thinking, oh, yeah, you know, this is potentially our our escape route um, in the medium term, at least. Um, well, thank you for coming on, Alan. It's really lovely uh, for you to agree to come on. Um, and could you just introduce the work you've been doing in general um, and explain to our listeners um, how that might play into kind of current debates around um, around COVID-19 and democracy? Yeah, so uh, for the last three years I've worked at the um, UK and in Changing Europe, which is a think tank uh, in academics with a think tank focused on, on, on Brexit. And that we've been looking at the the effect of Brexit on on UK politics, you know, on, on British politics, on things like the constitution and party politics. Uh, and we uh, last year we did quite a lot of research looking at the political values of uh, voters, uh, members of parliament, and party members, because Brexit has sort of fundamentally, if you like, changed. Uh, uh, the, the political landscape, the issues, the terrain on which Brexit was was fought, but we had two parties. We still do have two parties that are the Labour and Conservative Party. So, so understanding how Brexit has changed those parties and therefore changed British politics um, is what sort of we've been trying to do for the last sort of year or so, using sort of various surveys and so on. Okay, and um, it's interesting you say so the values have fundamentally changed and what what are kind of the big takeaways from that if you were to i know that's a big question but if so you were to sum up some of the big takeaways from those value changes 
Yeah, so we saw a process from, you know, from, from 2015. I mean, it's essentially a longer term process, but you can see it happen from 2015. Uh, the two parties uh, increasingly, uh, the, the coalitions that, that make up the two parties, the Conservative parties, voters and the Labour parties, voters, uh, become a lot more uh, socially authoritarian in one direction for the Conservative Party and socially liberal for, for, for the Labour Party. So, uh, and that's because British politics increasingly became about Brexit, which was a proxy for, uh, you know, uh, uh, social values rather than economic right politics. So whether someone was left wing or right wing didn't really tell you much about whether or not they were going to vote for Brexit. And then, it, and then it didn't really tell you much about whether or not they were going to change their electoral uh, votes in the next two elections in 2017 and 2019. So, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's, if you take, if you take these, these measurements of social values and economic values, so social values are things like, uh, you know, do you support the death penalty? Do you think that um, children should uh, obey authority? Are they taught enough about authority? factors like that um, and, and, and economic values sort of do we do we tax enough do other uh, is there one rule for the rich one rule for the poor sort of measurements of of economic values then you know what we find is you know for example the Labour Party became more socially or socially liberal than it actually did become more left-wing over the last four years because our politics became more and more about these social values uh, and less and less about sort of economic left-right politics. That's potentially going to change now in the new context of COVID-19. So we've got to a point, you know, potentially the, uh, you know, sort of a climax potentially in, in December 2019 and potentially a reversal towards uh, a, a politics uh, that is, that moves back to being about economic left-right issues and potentially, you know, other issues uh, like political competence, political management, and so on. So, uh, so yeah. So I think I think it, we don't we don't yet we don't yet know. There's some early evidence that the the, the Conservative Party is struggling to hold on to some of its uh, social authoritarian left wing voters. So that's what we've seen from the British election study in the last couple of months. So there's early indications that the sort of politics of Brexit, this politics about social values and so on, is perhaps beginning to recede. All become more complicated by a new politics of, of, of COVID. Oh, okay. Oh, so there was two things I just uh, be really interesting to. I might have misunderstood, um, or just to kind of expand on. So the first one was you said that your work seems to suggest that the Labour Party wasn't necessarily becoming more left wing, but more kind of socially inclusive. So that's a fascinating thing to to hear actually, because does that mean that some of the discourse around Jeremy Corbyn and the left kind of left break, if you will, after his election, it was overplayed, or it's just that there was potentially a distinction between the, lay, the leadership of Corbyn and McDonnell and then the kind of broader rump of the Labour Party. Well, on, it, it, the, the, the types of voter that became more likely to vote for the Labour Party in the 2017 and the 2019 elections were voters that were more middle class, more comfortable, more, if you like, if they, if they existed in uh, a different party system, perhaps in, on, in Europe, they would be more likely to vote for socially liberal parties than potentially social democratic parties or socialist parties. So, 
sort of uh, the, the voters that, that became attracted to the Labour Party and repelled from the, Lab and repelled from the uh, Conservative Party by, by Brexit were much more likely to be uh, and actually a lot of the people that voted for Brexit that moved to Boris Johnson were uh, voters that if you ask them uh, questions about uh, economic fairness are actually much more left-wing if you like than than some of these voters that moved to the to the Labour Party so oh wow uh, okay oh so there has yeah. been a real sort of uh, uh, at least temporarily a realignment of who's voted in yeah, those so coalitions. It, so it's like, yeah, it, it, there is there is an irony that, that the average the average voter uh, uh, in in December two thousand nineteen compared to before Jeremy Corbyn became leader, uh, the average Labour voter is more socially liberal uh, than uh, than than much more socially liberal than they were in two thousand fifteen, but only a little bit more uh, only a little bit more. Uh, left wing on, on, on the economic left right spectrum. Oh, okay. All right. And then, so another thing I thought uh, was towards the end of your initial discussion was you said that it seems like the Tories, uh, the Conservative Party, might struggle to hold on to some of those new seats. I presume that's you're referring to like the the, the, the red wall, right? So the, mm. the new coalition that uh, Boris Johnson and his cabinet have put together might be starting to show signs of strain as a result of COVID-19, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean the, the, the evidence we have, and there was a sort of a wave of the British election study, a special wave on, on um, the ask questions about coronavirus and uh, in, in, the summer, in the summer of last year, and they released it, or just later on last year, and they released it uh, uh, in December. And it found that conservative, the, the, the voters that the Conservative Party is losing are actually, uh, you know, disproportionately in in areas that and in, uh, among people that were sort of leavers, if you like. So, 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 and that's and that's in in, in part because um, this th this COVID issue isn't uh, an issue that is uh, uh, that it, it is an issue that is is if you like more likely to be understood as a sort of left right issue. It's not the it's not the people the people that are against lockdown are people that are libertarian economically, uh, but aren't socially sort of authoritarians. Which is sort of why it's in a way curious that Boris, that Nigel Farage, for example, has decided to be sort of anti uh, anti lockdown because his core voters are not the sort of voters that are necessarily uh, attracted to this sort of anti lockdown politics. So that, which is sort of a left right politics, not this. Not this sort of not this sort of socially authoritarian, social liberal divide that we've become used to with, with Brexit. So, so, so we've got a bit of a disjunction between what's happening in Westminster, where you have a whole load of people standing up in the Conservative Party and saying people don't want up of lockdowns, whereas actually in the country there's no real divide, or based upon you know those sort of old lines of Brexit, and everyone's pretty much pro, pro, uh, pro lockdown if you like. Okay, yeah, I mean it has been despite there being kind of falls in the support for the government right they in general people are from opinion polls it seems um that people are quite supportive of um, of, of lockdown yeah. measures and you know i mean there'd be critiques of how the policy is implemented um but actually in general people don't there's no huge pushback against it 
But we, yes, yeah, so we found we found among MPs in the Conservative Party, if you were in favour of Brexit, in favour of a No Deal Brexit, you were much more likely to be in favour of uh, of, of no, you were much more likely to be against lockdown, if you like. So the sort of MPs in the European Research Group are exactly the same sort of MPs that are in the coronavirus, uh, whatever they call it, research group. You know, oh, so, okay. so people like Steve Baker. Those yeah, Steve Baker would be a classic example, but that's not the case in the country. You've got a big disjunction really between MPs who are, say, who are sort of, you know, these sort of Brexiteer MPs, many of whom have a sort of libertarian vision for the UK, and actually the people that voted for Brexit. So it's the classic uh, disconnect between those sort of MPs that campaigned for Brexit and actually the people that are in favour of a, uh, uh, that were in favour of Brexit and sort of even people that voted for the Brexit party. So, you know, on, thing, on things like talk radio, you get people that would sort of seem to be sort of classic Brexit party territory, sort of saying how anti-lockdown they are, but that's just not at all replicated in the country. So you've got this real sort of disconnect between uh, the discourse that's happening in, in, in Westminster and the, and the reality. Okay. Oh, well, well, that brings us quite nicely, I think, onto the next theme I wanted to discuss. And it kind of broadly speaks to the relationship between trust values identity and then voting so presumably if there's if there is this disjuncture right at some point there could raise questions of trust between an mp and their constituents um even i mean presumably within the tory party itself um and i just wonder could you speak a, a little bit to those themes yeah so i mean i guess one of the things we thought when we looked at the the, the values of the conservative coalition is that it, well, um, and we did, we conducted this 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 sort of representative survey of MPs as well with Ipsos Mori, and and Conservative MPs have a way to the to the right of the even party members and especially their voters on the economy. So there's there's long been this disconnect between the Conservative Party in Parliament and the Conservative Party in in the country, and the and the assumption is as as we as we sort of leave leave we, where well, we sort of leave, leave restrictions and sort of recover and the economy the economy starts to recover there's going to be uh disagreement within the conservative coalition about how to manage the economic fall of covid so that the disconnect between the conservatives new coalition and its mps who are just basically you know people that have been in the party for 30 and 40 years and, and are, are sort of more likely to have uh much more econ economically right-wing, dry, if you, if you like, values from Thatcher, Thatcherism and, and so on. So it's a different, uh, it's almost two different, two different parties in that sense. So, so I, guess, I guess the thing you'd expect is the further, further distance uh, you have from someone's economic values, the more you have to try and catch up with, with that through potentially being seen as more competent or, 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 or other sort of things. Values aren't destiny just because someone is extremely far away from someone on the sort of on the sort of political compass doesn't mean they won't necessarily vote for them but it means potentially you have you have a lot more sort of work to do to keep hold of that sort of disparate coalition of, of, of voters oh okay oh so i guess so and I, you, you spoke to this a bit at the start actually so part of that i guess comes from the the uk's political system because we i mean we have had coalitions right in recent times but traditionally the UK doesn't have a national level um, kind of five-year coalitions in the way you know you think about in Germany right every government is a, is a coalition <laughs> and it's not yeah. to say necessarily one system's better than the other right like there are strengths and weaknesses <laughs> yeah. to, to both 
right? And and coalitions are a like there's the relatively stable German version of a coalition, as opposed to potentially a less stable Italian coalition system, yeah. right? So, um, but it's, so part of that disjuncture maybe in the UK between the party and its voters could can't. Would it be fair to say that part of that comes from the fact that most voters are just going to vote for two of the main parties anyway? Yeah, yeah. So you have, so you have the situation where British politics has, has changed. Everyone can sort of tell that it's changed. It feels so different from five years ago or 10 years ago. But if you look, but if you look at the, the state of the parties, you still have between parties that are sort of that have exactly the same amount of, of seats as they did in 2010. You have some sort of churn among the smaller parties, the rise of the SNP and the fall of the Lib Dems. But the Labour and the Conservative Party have basically the same vote share. Even though they have way more vote share than they did in 2010 and exactly the same amount of, of votes. So to understand what's going on in, the, in, in, the, in British party politics, uh, I think you have to look within the parties, sort of open the black box of these parties, if you like, and try and work out how they've changed internally and where those tensions are within these coalitions that they're building up under these big umbrellas that, you know, at first glance might look exactly the same as, as they did 20, 30 years ago, but are fundamentally changing in, in, in quite important ways. But, you know, uh, so that's, so yeah, so I think, I think, I think the, 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 the nature of British party politics makes it more, more important, I think, to really understand these sort of uh, intra-party, uh, you know, tensions that are going on. Okay, absolutely. And how, um, so if you were to identify big changes or big points of contention that have come out of the last year, well, but we're almost up to a year, right? Kind of, we're about 10 months out from the first lockdowns in March in the UK and are gonna continue to be um, moving forward. It seems to me from our, from our discussions, there's, there's like the economic question, you know, at some point, Rishi Sunak, um, <laughs> as the head, the kind of the chancellor, right? But all the operators below him are going to try to cut back. Um, I mean, they've tried numerous times and then had to kind of go back. But I presume at some point they're going to make a more considered efforts. Correct. So that seems like one area where them kind of points of contention and debate. Um, the kind of lockdown, anti-lockdown. Presumably, as more people get um, vaccinated um, and as as that support is withdrawn, that's going to become more and more of an issue that the government can't, I say ignore it, I wouldn't necessarily say they've been ignoring it, right, but sidelining those people. Um, and then they're kind of, there's, there's elections, right, um, scheduled for May in the UK. And some of those, were, I think, were scheduled anyway, and some of them are, are a holdover from last year. Um, yeah. So are they, would it be fair to say they would be three themes that you could consider yeah, moving forward absolutely i think i think you're really right yeah i think you're correct to point out in the, in the short term i think there's a really really big sort of question coming up in you know towards the end of february and the start of march uh i think the the the, the rebellion that is likely to happen in the conservative party if uh the government continues to uh reject opening up uh, the 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 economy is going to become pretty difficult to manage because yeah I think I think I think as you get as 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 the as the as the anti-lockdown people see an increase in in vaccinations and so on it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna make it more increasingly difficult to hold off that 
that internal party rebellion that's particularly prevalent within the conservative uh, uh, parliamentary party, if you like, uh, is going to potentially come to come to a head. But then you have the elections. I mean, I think it's looking increasingly um, unlikely they'll take place in May, but they might. But they but they may take place later on in the summer, or or the early autumn. Um, and as you say, they're, they're just sort of a mon monster set of midterm elections, if you like, for... for yeah, for that's the, right. I hadn't thought... I mean, it's essentially... It's a bit. It's turning into a bit of a US-style midterm elections, aren't they? That's <laughs> yeah, basically. Phrasing, yeah. actually, yeah. Because <laughs> you've got the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh uh, Senate, and you've got the a whole series of, of, of key MRL... ...of uh, people's... Um, uh, views on on how the devolution of set settlement has sort of worked in the UK context, because you've had uh, competing power bases within the UK uh, and within England, essentially for the first time, really, you've seen the increased power for regional mayors, you know, Andy Burnham being the, being the obvious example. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether that is rewarded or not. Um, you think it probably would be. I mean, many places will be thinking, why wouldn't I want someone like Andy Burnham representing my regional interests? And then going out of the pandemic, uh, I think, you know, and I think uh, that, you know, King's uh, College, I think Polish Institute are producing some research soon on this, on attitudes to inequality and what people think of as most important as a result of, of COVID. You, I mean, people, people are actually really uh, concerned and they're most concerned about regional inequalities within, within the UK. I mean, if you ask people what, what inequalities they think of as, as most problematic, they will say, uh, you know, regional, regional inequalities within, within, within the UK. And that was, that was why and that was how the uh, Conservative Party managed to uh, get the votes of some people in certain parts of of the UK and whether or not that's that's potentially both an area that, that, that the Labour Party can can challenge sort of using um, regional disparities and perceptions of regional unfairness to actually attack the Conservative government at a national level with will potentially be a, a way that the uh, government potentially becomes increasingly un, unpopular because people will may think that they're they're unfairly treated. You've actually seen this today. I've got a head on the Today programme discussion about the avoidance of a postcode lottery on, you know, on vaccination, uh, on the vaccination programme. I think the, I think the government is, I think the idea of, I think it's, it's obviously a, not a new idea, but uh, competing regions within the UK uh, and that being a politically uh, potent uh, weapon to use against the government, the idea that some places are treated less fairly than others. Is something that I think is going to become a, a sort of a long-term feature of our of our politics, if you like. Yeah, I mean, so the Tories they ran on yeah the sort of their le leveling up agenda. It's one of um, was was key key to the twenty nineteen. And um, you would, I mean, that's another interesting faction within the Tory party, isn't it? The kind of those sort of red wall, blue wall now seats. Um, you see them kind of trying to put themselves as. There's, there's different banners. Sometimes they're under like the broader Northern powerhouse. Sometimes mm. um, they're the kind of the red wall, blue wall seats. Um, that's really fascinating. Um, I just wondered if, and so um, I'm not sure 
you may or may not have any thoughts about this. So how does, can you see any long-term implications maybe for the kind of this four nations approach, which is quite different as you pointed out to um, what's happened um, previously, or at least how the UK is a, as a nation, or maybe maybe it's just an English thing, right? How the English have thought about the UK. Uh, um, can you see if is that gonna have effects on devolution moving forward? Potentially on the, I guess the big question is Scotland, right? But are there other? Um... Yeah, well, I mean, the big question is the big question is Scotland, and it's and it's notable really that although you know people like me that have been talking about Brexit for the last three years have said that. Brexit poses a fundamental problem for the UK's, uh, you know, political union. Ultimately, it was COVID nineteen and the management of, the, of COVID nineteen that became the the point at which uh, opposition, uh, well, support for uh, Scottish independence has risen by that small but important uh, sort of, you know, notch to make it look like it's. Not just like a high possibility, but you know, a high likelihood that that, that if there was another referendum, that, that that Scotland would vote for independence. So I think COVID. I mean, it's going to be difficult to work out how this has played out, but COVID appears to have had uh, uh, as difficult uh, implications for the political union in uh, as Brexit did. I mean, whether that's the case in the long term, I don't, I don't know, but certainly it looks like that in the. In the opinion polls, and I guess I guess the fallout from the continuing fallout from Brexit um, is is likely to pose continued threats to to the union because I mean people will be reminded of the, uh, the UK government uh, in more aspects of their life than they than they were before, and the UK government is broadly unpopular. So I mean I think the the, the government will impede upon lives of people in Scotland uh, and will be more visible in, 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 in how they do business and how they travel and so on. So I think that's it. I think that, I think there is long-term, long-term pressures on the, on the, on the union that result from, from, from sort of, from, from Brexit too. Uh, so yeah, so I think, I think we're in a, I think we're, a, I think we're, I think the union's in a, in a difficult, in a difficult position. And I think, I think you've also seen even in, you know, you know, in what, in Wales you've seen, an increase, an increasing understanding of, of, of what areas are, are, are devolved and what aren't. You've seen that pointed out uh, on news bulletins, and you've seen the, the increase, and you've seen, you know, the increased scrutiny and the increased uh, visibility of Mark Drayford as, as first minister. So I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's brought to the fore the sort of the, the fact that we have this sort of messy. Uh, this messy governance settlement in the UK where uh, and, and um, yeah how that plays out even when there are these sort of votes these are uh, this sort of mega elections in the at some point in the summer yeah absolutely I mean it is interesting isn't it that on 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 Wales I think probably even in in England kind of that I bet if you'd have asked many English people a year ago they wouldn't have been able to name know who Mark Drayford was right um yeah. whereas now he's him and both and Nicola Sturgeon do these I mean the pretty competent press conferences on a regular basis um mm. and in a way and, and it gets covered you know on in across 
across the UK in a way that it certainly did. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon probably got more coverage, but um, um, yeah, yeah. So, and I, and I guess, I guess, I guess these regional champions and these and these and these and these national champions, you know, and say so regional champions in, in in England, they, you know, Andy Burnham, for example, is a lot more unpopular in the rest of the UK than he is. Yeah, where sure. he represents because people think of of, of governance as, uh, and the outcomes as sort of a zero sum game. So if Andy Burnham's uh, trying to get more money for you know uh, the north, it's then not available for Cornwall. Less or money or for the south. Yeah. yeah, so people are sort of people have that sort of rational approach, if you like, to not necessarily as rational, but they have that sort of zero sum <laughs> approach to yeah, sure. uh, to to how to how it sort of all, all works. So that creates these sort of tensions within the UK so that's I think that's what's I think I think you're seeing that potentially on a bigger level with this with the sort of with the Scotland, Scotland Wales and England you know so okay brilliant okay and so just before we wrap up was there any other kind of important points you wanted to touch on or or make well no yeah yeah I I, I is 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 sort of uh it's, it's still un, it's still unclear what's going to happen in the next in the next few months. I think I think I think how the vaccine rollout is managed will will determine in part how the government is remembered for its handling of COVID nineteen, rightly or wrongly. I think that speaks to the fact that you have uh, uh, potentially, uh, and we've been talking about values quite a lot, but essentially values aren't necessarily the values aren't aren't. For parties, and you have a uh, um, essentially competing claims to competence and management of this crisis is something that's going to be also be a, 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 along with how the economy is managed and Brexit is managed over the next few years. It's going to be the key factor that determines whether or not you know these voters, which are up for grabs, if you like, for the, for, for the Labour Party because they are distant from the Conservative Party, whether or not they can be. Can be grabbed with whether or not that sort of that the the whether or not Keir Starmer can successfully sort of mount that case for the prosecution against uh, sure. Boris Johnson. So yeah. we'll see how that plays I out. I think that's a good way of framing it. Maybe we'll call the episode that Val <laughs> values aren't destiny. I like that. That's, <laughs> that's a good <laughs> pithy phrase, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on. Um, we'll leave it there.